we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we're coming into your presence now, we're thankful for who you are. Thankful for how you work. Thankful, Father, for your intervention. Our God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our God has created this world. This world has fallen into sin. The first Adam has brought sin into this world and was our primary representative in sin. But the last Adam has reversed the course of the first Adam, brought redemption immediately to the soul and ultimately for the body. And we need to understand how all that fits together. So in any of these services today, Father, if people are coming here struggling, it might be a spiritual battle from within. It could be a physical battle from without. There's something in both accounts that is, that is spoken of here, taught of here, applied here, that relates to us. Give us wisdom, Father, to process your truth and relate it to everyday living. So, Father, these minutes together are important. So what we're asking now is that you would once again warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was looking ahead as to what I would be speaking on this Sunday, God in his sovereign wisdom, of course, once again relates a story to what you're covering. Because in the latest edition of World Magazine is the is a article devoted to Johnny Erickson. And it's entitled, From Despair to Joy, where she receives the Daniel of the Year Award from World Magazine. And the article starts off as follows, that in the midnight darkness of a Baltimore hospital in 1967, figure out where you are now in time, Johnny Erickson begged God to heal her. Weeks earlier, the 17-year-old girl had broken her neck after diving into unexpectedly shallow waters in the Chesapeake Bay. And the result? Paralysis from the shoulders down. The teenager endured grueling surgery and lay strapped onto a striker frame designed to allow nurses to turn patients with spinal cord injuries. Her weight dropped to 80 pounds, and one friend sobbed at the site. But Johnny had grown up in church, and she had hoped that God was teaching her a dramatic lesson before healing her quadriplegia. At night in her hospital bed, Johnny would imagine herself at the pool of Bethesda. And in the account from John 5, a man disabled for 38 years waits at a pool for someone to dip him into healing waters. 
Jesus passes by and heals him. The man gets up and walks. And Johnny imagined herself at the pool and sang a hymn she learned as a child. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Johnny never walked again. Her permanent paralysis, including losing the use of her hands, led to a battle with depression and doubts about God's goodness. Why would he leave her this way? What kind of savior doesn't heal a paralyzed girl who cries out to him? Fifty years later. Isn't that amazing now? Fifty years later, Johnny's answer is jubilant. It sounds incredible, but I, I really would rather be in this wheelchair, knowing Jesus as I do, than be on my feet without him. She celebrates, quote, that glorious but awful, beautiful but sad, terrible but wonderful day I broke my neck. Because look what God has done. I want to explore her thoughts with you this morning. I want her thoughts to be woven into the passage. I want this passage to be related not only to her experience, but to our experiences, because it has to do with the matter of redemption, past, present, and future. The application of redemption as it relates not only to the first coming of Christ, but also to the second coming of Christ. What we're going to do is to explore this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. And what we want to do is to be able to see it in the context of the big picture of what this chapter is all about. It's the classic chapter of bodily resurrection, isn't it? Now, you might remember, those that have studied this or read it even in cursory form, that the chapter begins with three significant facts pertaining to Jesus Christ. For in verse 3 of this opening chapter, it reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance, primary, what I also received. Here are the three facts that, number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. And number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now you see how the Scriptures have bookended on this descriptive. Now what he has done is that he has used a trio of thoughts, hasn't he? When you examined that verse with me, what you saw here is that Christ died, but not, did not merely die, he died for our sins. The second of all, he was buried. And the thirdly, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is highly bodily in its emphasis. 
capture that thought. Not only were there three facts pertaining to Jesus' bodily resurrection that started this chapter, there is also three, or what I'll call a trio in sequence of how we are to understood, understand this chapter as it relates past, present, and future of bodily resurrection. Because in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. The word order in verse 23 carries with it a military term, like a platoon or a squad. The first of the three resurrections is Christ, the first fruits. The second of the three resurrections, the believers, where it reads, Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The third of the three resurrections is found in verse 24, the resurrection of the unbeliever. Then comes to the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Then he summarizes, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, what I want to do with you, and we've got that Johnny Erickson experience in our minds, is to draw out three significant realms that Paul addresses here, relates directly now to the idea of the resurrected body. The first comes out of verse 35 through 41. We're going to phrase it like this. Number one, when pondering that future resurrection, that future bodily resurrection, explore God's teachings from the natural realm. We're going to start there. The natural realm. Those who are science majors, you're going to drink this up. Paul seems to have a grasp upon the wide range of science in these verses. But once again, he offers a trio of thoughts, even under this realm, because there are three domains that he wants to draw out for you and me to better understand how our body now prepares us for the way in which God wants to work with this body to come. And he starts with what I will call the vegetable domain in 36 to 38. But we've got to get there. Because he's got to address some questions in 35, doesn't he? Like you and I have to do day in, day out in the workplace and so on. So someone, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Who's this someone? It's the same someone, I believe, that's being described in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, what we find here is that there are skeptics in the crowd that Paul is addressing. Now, bear in mind, he's writing to the Corinthians. And Greek culture was such that the soul was viewed as good, but the body was viewed as evil. So there were various philosophical perspectives on how you are to view the body. Some used the hedonistic approach, 
just indulge. Others are on the flip side, stoicism rather than hedonism, and restrained at all costs. And so the body in both cases was viewed as evil. Jesus then, being described as one who was raised from the dead, breaks down their philosophies, you see, because they are then confronted with an argument from the Apostle Paul that God is sovereignly utilizing the body, and the body is under his lordship as well. So now the Corinthians are beginning to grapple with this whole thing. This isn't fitting into my worldview. One question, how are the dead raised? How is this going to happen? Well, he's going to answer that in 36. Second question, with what kind of body do they come? Which he will answer in verse, in verse 38. Well, where does he begin? With an exclamation point. You foolish person. You can almost see him pointing. You say, whoa, Paul. Coming on hard. But what he's doing at this point is that he is drawing principles out from the book of Proverbs. We're in chapter 26. And he knew his categories of when and when not to answer a fool. In chapter 26, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So now, Paul tackles the subject. And as he begins to deal with the argument for bodily resurrection, after having established that Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore someday you too will be, he starts with the natural realm, and in particular, draws our attention to what we'll call the vegetable domain the vegetable domain. Verses 36 to 38. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, he writes. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat, or of some other grain. In other words, if you put that grain into the ground, as it grows and as it blossoms, you don't see just this humongous grain that's come out of the ground. There was life with potential within that seed. When I read that, my mind went back to what I had read some time ago. 200 miles northeast of Los Angeles is a baked-out gorge called Death Valley, the lowest place in the United States, dropping 276 feet below sea level. It's also the hottest place in the country with an official recording of 134 degrees. Streams flow into Death Valley only to disappear, and a scant two and a half inches of rain falls on the barren wasteland each year. Get this. But some time ago, an amazing thing happened. For 19 straight days, rain fell onto the bone-dry earth. Suddenly, all kinds of seed dormant for years, burst into bloom. 
the valley of death had become the valley of life. And I made a notation in my Bible at that point, pulling from National Geographic into 1 Corinthians 15. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. In other words, there is both continuity and discontinuity with that seed. Just in the same way there's continuity as was discontinuity with this present body. It will be my body, this body, when raised from the dead. At the same time, there's discontinuity because it will be a glorified, perfected body when raised from the dead. This will be his argument, that there is both continuity as well as discontinuity. All of a sudden, in verse 38, you've got your interventionist moment on hand. But God. But God gives it a body. But notice his sovereignty here. As he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. Death Valley, the valley of death, becomes the valley of life. Now, you examine that then, and you realize, okay, he's got me good for starts, but I've got to continue on with this thought process. Where do we go from here? Verses 36 to 38 deals with the vegetable domain, part of the natural realm. But now he continues on with verse 39. And you move from the vegetable domain to what I will call the fleshly domain. 39. For not all flesh is the same, but... There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. But what this shares in common is that you've got this creator, you see, who is sovereign over his creation and creates distinctions within his creation. Not all flesh is the same. There's one card for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for, another for fish. He's drawing you in. Okay, there's a distinctiveness to all this. But now he moves you to a third domain, what we'll call the celestial domain. Pull out your telescopes. In verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And you're reflecting, aren't you, on Psalm 8. 
And when I look at you, O heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? So you are mindful of him. Son of man, that you care for him. He cares for you, you know. And then you tie it together with Psalm 19, verse 1, and following the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And now you allow the Psalms to give you some guidance, creational Psalms, to what you find here. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. But now he takes you from the earthly upward to the heavenly. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Have you ever pondered how this relates to the resurrected body? What should we sing, Johnny Erickson was asked, by people after a, a digitized version of the movie Johnny was shown in a local church? The writer tells us she sometimes has to lean a certain way to get enough air to sing, but that doesn't stop her from beginning, oh, worship the king, oh, glorious above. Did you hear that word glorious and tied to that word glory that we've been reading? Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. After the screening, Johnny jokes with the crowd, tells them she's not going to make a sequel. There's going to be no Return of Johnny movie, she says. But she grows serious when she explains how God used her accident to draw her closer to him, not further from him. And she urges anyone in the audience who does not know Jesus to lay your sin at the foot of the cross, let God save you. On the way home, her husband Ken, Johnny, and Kathy, her sister, who was in town visiting, talk about the people they saw that night. They pray and thank God for his blessings. I mock what comes next. They enjoy the full moon. And the sisters remember how their parents loved to sing songs about the moon on camping trips. Both have since passed away. At home, Johnny rolls onto the driveway, looks up at the night sky, the celestial domain, and begins to harmonize with Kathy, quote, shine on. Shine on, harvest moon, for me and my gal, unquote. Man. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. Harvest, that's seed. That's the vegetable realm. Tie it together now with the celestial realm. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon. Another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 
Now, he has used three domains, vegetable, fleshly, celestial, to support his argument that you and I have got to be exploring the natural realm to fully appreciate what God is doing with body, present as well as future, as you think about that resurrected body and Jesus in that upper room. As you think about that resurrected body as Jesus prepares a fish dinner, he was giving evidence even as they were having fish together of what resurrection body entails. But on now, on now to the next realm. Because second of all, when, when pondering the future resurrection, bodily resurrection, explore God's teachings from the physical realm. You just did the natural realm, looking at the creation above and below. But now we begin to examine the physiology of life and the anatomy of life. And look what comes, look what comes next with this but-godness, the interventionist. He now makes a connection between the natural realm and the physical realm. And in verse 42, sets up a series of contrasts. I want you to spot them, and I want you to be thinking about them, and I want you to note what we have italicized that appears on the screen. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now Paul is right there. Think about what he's doing. And what I want you to see here with our four italicized words or expressions, when you are asked the question, in what kind of body will we have when we're with the Lord? Here are four distinctives about that body that I think have direct bearing upon answering that question. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. We agree with that. We see it every day. Here's your first distinctive about that glorified, resurrected body. What is raised is imperishable. It's not going to wear out. You're not going to need a knee replacement, hip replacement. Furthermore, it's not going to grow old. Gradual process of aging is part of the process by which right now we are subject to the now rather than the not yet, but the not yet is connected to the now. You've got yourself on hand here, a future in which what God is saying is that this will be an imperishable body. And I think about that. Where in Sports Illustrated in the past couple of weeks, I was reading about a particular quarterback in the NFL. His wife is a nurse. 
Kelly Stafford had completed nursing school and was working for a plastic surgeon. Listen carefully to what comes next in that sentence. Watching people pursue their own version of perfection. The secularist is trying to bring the not yet into the now by pursuing their own version of perfection. God is working sequentially here. We've got to understand how the now and the not yet, the perishable and the imperishable, are part of his timeline and his redemptive strategy. What is, what is sown, you see, right now, we're dealing with perishables. What is raised is imperishable. There's your first distinctive of that resurrection body to anticipate. Second of all, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. In other words, you will have a glorified body. And this is exactly what Paul himself in his sequence is informing us of in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And he's viewing the future as if it's the good is done. It doesn't say you will experience glory. He says it is glorified. There's a certainty to that. I smile then when I read this account from Benjamin Franklin. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding. Lies here food for worms, but the work shall not be lost. For it will, as he believes, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition. Revised and corrected by the author. He's onto something. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. But now there's a third distinctive it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you and I see how Paul had to deal with his own body letting him down, how he dealt with the whole matter of strength and weakness, weakness and strength. On behalf of this man, I will not boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Later he would say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Speaking of his Lord, speaking to him. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then I'm back to Johnny Erickson. 
But Shelby already knows Johnny, and she volunteers here at ministry, the ministry. And this afternoon, Shelby's helped to the front in her wheelchair so Johnny can hear her. And the two sit wheelchair to wheelchair. Shelby, Shelby's voice breaks. I just want to say that you are very strong. And Johnny smiles and says, but Shelby, I don't feel strong. I feel like I'm the weakest person in the world. She describes her two-hour morning routine of trying to get ready to go out the door. And says, I tell God, I don't have the strength for this, but you do. I can't do quadrupedia, well, I can't even say it now, plegia today. And I studied that area. I can't do it without you, but God always gives her the strength, she tells Shelby. And she's learning to boast in her weakness. And she calls it, quote, the biblical way to wake up in the morning. Unquote. What's your biblical way of waking up in the morning? Ready to be quoted? Sown in weakness, raised in power. But there's a fourth distinctive about that resurrection body. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. A transition phrase. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In other words, as I've penned for our inserts this morning, the future body of the believer will possess both continuity and discontinuity with the present body. That future body will be both the same body, your body now. Continuity. And yet what we'll call an upgraded, perfected body. Discontinuity. Think Jesus raised from the dead. Same body. Glorified body. What's the difference? This is a sinful body. His was a sinless body. But both were dealing here with bodies. So now you tie what's being described here with, say, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what you now need is the glorified body so that you can enter in. Which leads then to this third realm. We'll put some giddy up and go into this. Thirdly, when pondering the future resurrection, explore God's teachings from the historical realm. And now in 45, once again, he does what we do here every day, and certainly every Sunday, verse by verse, not human opinion, but God's word. Thus it is written. I want you to spot now with me two significant contrasts in the historical realm. The first contrast, contrast the first Adam with the last Adam. In 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Here comes Jesus. The last Adam became a life 
giving spirit. In other words, the first Adam is associated with death. The second Adam, the last Adam, overcomes death and produces resurrection. Contrast. 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. To put it another way, there is a now and a not yet. There is this body today, but when glorified, that will be that body of tomorrow. And then for those of us who have stood in cemeteries, as we've watched a loved one be laid to rest, the body. As was the man of dust tying Genesis to the cemetery, so also are those who are of the dust. But see the contrast? And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. If you're born only once, you are distinctly and completely tied to the first Adam. But if you are born again, born twice, you'll die only once, experiencing the repercussions of the sin of the first Adam, but anticipating that future glorified body resurrection because of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who is spoken of in those opening verses we started with, with those facts. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Adam died in his sins. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And now you tie the beginning of chapter 15 to these final two verses. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Notice here, not only the contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam, but furthermore, the earthly image versus the heavenly image. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Time to dust it off. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Christopher Wren, when he was involved in the new cathedral of St. Paul's in London, when he and his chief mason had decided where the central point of the crossing should be, over which the dome was to be raised, he sent a workman off to bring a stone from the rubble of the old cathedral. Get that? The old cathedral to mark the spot. The workman chose a fragment at random, he writes in his memoirs, brought it to them, and it had one word on it. Resurgam, in English, I shall rise again. A coincidence? Or divine appointment. Meanwhile, Johnny Erickson, there's one more thing. I have hope for the future.
The Bible speaks of our bodies being glorified in heaven. In high school, that was always a hazy foreign concept, but now I realize I will be healed. I have not been cheated out of being a complete person. I'm just going through a temporal delay. And God is with me even through that. Being glorified. I know what that means to me now. It's the time after my death here, when alive, I'll be dancing on my feet. For the glory of God. But God. Let's stand together. For anyone who comes to any of these services today and their complete identity is tied to only the first Adam, help them to understand that principle born once, we die twice, physically and then eternally. But if we become born again by the work in the Holy Spirit, born twice, die only once, as we anticipate that future resurrection, rooted in the last Adam who overcame death, so that believers can prepare for the dance. And it's eternal. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.